The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gilson and this is episode 24. Today we have a friend of mine that I've known for, geez, almost 11 years now. I think we first met back uh, when I first started working on ANSI standards in 2009-ish. But it is Rick Montgomery who is the VP of Sales for Motion Laboratories, which most people know as a power distro and motor control company. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm great, Ethan. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, enjoying some nice weather up here in New England right now. So, the question I asked everybody is, uh, who are you? Yeah, so I'm Rick Montgomery. Um, I've BPSLs for Motion Labs, like you said. I've been with Motion Labs for about three and a half years now. Um, most people in the industry know me from my... Uh, former employment as um, uh, was my their business development manager. So essentially national sales manager for the stage maker product. And I was there for just about 10 years. And that was uh, my first job actually in the entertainment industry. So one of the things that I mentioned a lot of time is you know, a lot of people tend to get into the, the entertainment rigging industry through being involved in performing arts in high school or something. Uh, you came from the industrial side, correct? Yeah, uh, you know, my full background, um, my, my background, my education and stuff is really in industrial electronics. Um, I used to work uh, doing control systems in a steel mill. And I have three children two of which, well, actually all three, I guess, um, started kind of getting involved in the arts. Um, they started doing some plays with the local children's theater. They were doing some modeling, some TV commercials and stuff like that. And just like how most people get into local theater and stuff, everybody's looking for a volunteer. They found out how to build sets. Um, I started building sets for the theater and eventually uh, was asked to join the board of directors. Being uh, vice president of board, board directors, you know, one bullet from the top, and um, just kind of went on from there. That was actually what led me into my first position. I always remember um, one of the first questions that I was asked when I applied for the stage maker job from the president of the company was, "Tell me about this children's theater." Um, so it's kind of funny that all those years of volunteering and stuff is actually what led me into this industry. Yeah, it, it is, you know, kind of interesting how uh, I've referred often that a career is often something that, you know, you end up having a passion for. And so it makes it easier to do it. And, you know, it affords you to live the life you want to live. So it's nice to hear, you know, finding something that you enjoy doing and volunteering with and, and helping your kids and was able to turn into something. So, um, so after you were at StageMaker, you joined Motion Labs. And I would think that, um, at, at least within the U.S. market, 
there are two uh, major manufacturers of chain hoist controls, uh, Motion Labs on the East Coast and Schoenberg on the West Coast. Um, now, there are other companies like Applied Electronics and, and other people who do make them. But I, my perception is, is that those two companies have the lion's share of the market. Um, so let's, you know, this this may be an episode that's a little more nuts and bolts than we usually talk about. But let's talk about motor controllers. So what um, one of the things that we, we talked about before we got on, we'll start with a good topic, which is this. Every once in a while, you'll see online in a discussion, someone coming up that they wish there would be a standard pin configuration for a, a multi-conductor uh, fly cable on a hoist. So let's talk about that a little. What are the challenges trying to come up with a standard that says pin one is this, pin two is that? And, you know, what are the challenges? You know, I, I was shocked whenever I came into the industry and I saw there's three, you know, connectors that most people use. You have dual twist lock, which is generally all 16 foot power, all 14 foot control. You have P14, and then you have, uh, you know, the 7 pin. And I was really shocked whenever I started realizing that there are so many different combinations of how you can wire the 7 pin connector. Uh, coming from my background in industrial electronics and stuff, you know, you would have different connectors um, that could be wired, same connectors that could be wired differently, but per application, they were, of course, always the same. Um, I, I didn't get it. I'll, I'll have to admit that at one point, I thought, oh, I can change the world here. And I had no idea just how ingrained and entrenched our industry is with all the various pinouts, pin configurations for especially the seven pin. Um, you know, one thing to start with, the good news is the P14 really only has one pin out. Um, that connector was kind of started by Motion Labs, and we as a company really refused to wire any differently than the standard configuration. So that's one that's generally pretty safe with. Um, you mentioned multi-pin, but it's not just multi-pin because even the uh, dual twist locks, there are various uh, pin configurations out there for those right. that, but you know, typically there is a standard with those um, on the L16 and the L1420. Um, one of the most notable is pins four and five are flat. Four will be ground and five is up on one pin out and then vice versa for the other. And unfortunately, right. whenever you plug one into the other, if you happen to go down, it'll go down. But the moment that you hit up, you're gonna take 110 volts of ground and blow the fuse in the control circuit. Right. And so for for our, our novice listeners, for people who maybe have used chain hoist a lot, but have never been inside of one, typically on a, uh, and again, I'm, I'm being myopic to the U.S. market here, um, on a three-phase chain hoist, there are seven wires in that fly cable or in the pair of fly cables, if you're using uh, separate twist locks. Let's just talk, let, let's assume we're talking about a single cable. Yeah. So you have four, which are for your power. You have a ground and you have three phases of your power. There is no neutral. Motors do not use a neutral. They are all uh, 
based on those three phases and the cycling between those phases. And that is very simplified. So those are four wires. Then on the control side, and again, in the US, you're allowed to, I think it's 120 volts or maybe it's 130 volts, but um, you're allowed to do your control voltage up to 100 and let's say 30 volts just for variation. And that's because uh, the industry didn't want to require transformers in the chain hoist to change that voltage to like 24, 12 volts, which is just added expense, added size, added weight. So you have three wires for control. You have a common, you're up and you're down. So because we are dealing with line voltage, if you mix any of those wires from the power or the control side, your connector spins, something happens, you end up with bad stuff. Um, and, and, and that's where the, the origin of the why isn't there a standard is because of the, well, what if, you know, on a, a uh, Sokopex style connector, and there's a bunch of different manufacturers of them, sometimes that assembly that holds the pins can spin on you. And so you end up not matching up pin one to pin one, it's one to two or something. And so that's the question of, well, can't we figure out a pin configuration where if it spins, you never have a failure situation? It's, 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 I hate to interrupt, but we'll yeah. this, but I got to go back to where you said about the transformer. There actually is a transformer in every hoist. So okay. you take two of the two legs of the 208 and they transform that to the 110 volt or some hoist are uh, 48 volt AC as well for the control. Really? Yeah. yeah. So, sorry, I was sitting here thinking and I was like, I, I don't think we can let that pass. I'm about to interrupt me. No, no. I... Yeah, learn something new every day. I thought... Yeah, every horse has a transformer, and, and that's where your control fuse comes from. It's on the secondary side of that transformer, and that's the fuse okay. that ends up getting blown a lot. Gotcha. So why then do they allow 100 and, again, 120? Why do they allow line voltage for um, control? What's the benefit? Um, well, the, the biggest thing is too is like long long runs. You know, so depending on how long that run is um, that you have versus voltage drop across uh, your cable. Um, the most common is 110 volts, but there are um, a lot of 48 volt uh, transformers and 48 volts for the control circuit as well. And for some reason, I'm not sure exactly why. But it was kind of, you know, I didn't mention that I, I did outside of my steel mill experience. I worked um, in the hoisting industry on the industrial side for about five years. And a lot of the industrial hoists used the 48 volt uh, control voltage instead of 110 also. Okay. Oh, as I said, you learn something new every day. I had always uh, thought I had been told that it was 110 to eliminate the need for a transformer. 
yeah. and and <laughs> going to low voltage. It's funny because that's one thing that they teach a lot of people whenever I was we would do classes or even the classes that we offer at Motion Labs is always you know, know where is the control voltage originate from because a lot of people think that the control voltage is something to do with the motor controller but it's not the control voltage is always generated in the hoist so the motor controller is supplying the three-phase power to the hoist um, two legs of that go to a transformer it's transformed down to the control voltage set controller goes through some relays and then you know we just return that through either the up or down wire to energize the relay so the controller doesn't really do anything with the control voltage other than switch it between up and down. Right. And we should be clear that we are talking about control between the the motor controller and power distro and the hoist and not the remote pendant that you're selecting the individual motors with. That usually is low voltage. Um, exactly. Exactly. And that differs a lot from... Um, so you have a two-button pickle. When, whenever you have a two-button pickle, you just have up and down. Um, you know, that, that common high is coming back to that pickle. And when you push the up button, you close a contact, just like, you know, flipping the little switch. And you send that 110 volts back um, to the hoist to, to energize the up relay. And the same thing for the down circuit. But it differs like, with the motion last product, to where we use a low-voltage uh, circuit in our handhelds going back so you know two completely different things and not the, the same type of device same, same function but very different type of device right what uh what do you think are some of the uh oh how do i want to phrase it can you think of the top three misuses of a chain of a uh, motor controller or the the three things that people do not do properly with them? You know, one of the things I, I found out that a lot of people were doing that I, I didn't realize is, you know, plug and hoist in hot. Um, you know, if you look at any of the AC standards and stuff and manufacturer's recommendations, you really shouldn't be doing that. Um, a lot of people don't realize that whenever you have the handheld remote in, in, in the face of the motion labs product whenever you hit the kill switch, you actually remove power going through the hoist. So just doing that, not having to walk back to the controller, but killing it just from the, from the handheld will remove power and allow you to plug the hoist in, in safely. I've seen a lot of instances where people will plug a seven pin in and they'll be talking to their friend and you know not really paying a lot of attention and instead of lining up the keyways to make sure they plug it in, you know, straight, they'll sit there and turn the two actors opposite directions, waiting for that key to fall into place, and then they'll shove it together. And doing that, you, you can certainly have a situation where you can have some arcing between pins. And as you're rotating it, if that ground pin is on the outside ring, see pin, you know, this is a pin where pin four is ground, as you're rotating that, you, you could have a situation where you could ground one of the legs of your three-phase power. And you know, that's a situation where you can have a connector, you know, explode in your hands, you know, certainly arc and cause some, you know, lifelong injuries for burns to your hands and stuff like that. So 
people should you know be more careful on how they're plugging them in look at the key waves and then certainly be you know pulling the power to the hoist and through the cable before they connect them yeah years ago i was doing an arena show and one of uh we had a a, a truss with five hoists on it and one of the local crew had not fully connected the fly cable. It was a, a P7 connector, so the quarter turn um, style connector where you plug it in, you turn the collar a quarter of the way, and it locks it in. Well, they hadn't got it all the way in, so it was floating. And I, uh, I had made the mistake. This was early on in my career, but I had made the mistake of walking away from the pendant without hitting the, the kill switch, to say. And all of a sudden... I heard a motor running and I look at this 80 foot truss with five motors in the middle of the truss is going up and uh, ran over to the controller and kicked the breakers off and that stopped it. But they had just aligned everything perfectly that certain pins made contact and the motor was able to run. Um, and that's kind of one of those things, which is uh, I, I would put on the list of people walking away without disengaging the power from the hoists and i think that's a, a good point to bring up is when you turn that pendant off that is killing power uh to the hoist that is one of the advantages of a integrated motor control and power distro is you have that integration yeah, you're very right i think a lot of times people get so used to doing things and doing the same thing over and over and you know, they haven't had any close calls or anything happen, and obviously complacency sets in. Um, one, one of the things I see sometimes is every controller out there, or at least, you know, most styles, we make a style without a phase reverse, but most all controllers out there have a phase reversal switch. And people need to always make sure that, you know, whenever you're, you know, energizing the hoist to go up, that you are truly going up and when you're telling people down, you're truly, you know, your voice is truly going down. A lot of times if the building phase is out of phase or something, I've seen people select down and then be running it up and they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just select up to go down. But anytime that you do that, you take the safety of the limit switches out of the circuit um, because now you're using the down relay to actually go up um, with certain different types of hoist. You can damage limits. I would tend to, if someone asked me and said, Hey, you know, I'm in a ballroom and I need an extra six inches of trim and I have that distance, you know, I got 12 inches of chain outside the end of the motor. I'm just going to reverse the phase and get that six inches. And my response would be, I would rather see you take the time to go up and reset the limit switch appropriately to get that six inches than to reverse the phase. Yes, it takes more time, 
but it's the right way to do it because you're not going to damage the equipment. Um, and I've done that a few times in ballrooms where, he, you know, you send out your motors, you try to set them to be the same limit. And that's the other thing for people to realize. The limit switches and electric chain hoises are... I don't want to use the term passive because that's probably not a, an accurate description, but they're very simple and they're not as precise as you might see in automation or motorized line sets, for instance, where they're using an encoder to assist with the position of things. So you you get what half an in, half a link, a link of variance sometimes. You know, if you run a motor in and out from its uh, limit switch, you'll get some change. So you may have motors that are just not the same and you're trying to get that one more inch and sometimes you have to back off the limit just to be able to get it to work properly. But that's the correct way to do it. Reverse facing a hoist is is never a, a good choice. Yeah, and you know, what limited time I have out in the field, you know, I've never really done much, you know, production or anything like that, but I have certainly been around, you know, numerous uh, job sites and stuff. And I've definitely seen people reverse the phase to, to get a little more out of it. And I've seen chicken hoist that, you know, arrive on show site that have, one will have a limit set at two foot and the other one set at, you know, eight inches or something. And I think that goes back, you know, to making sure that you're checking out the equipment when, you know, it goes out. It comes back to the shop. Everything should be checked out, and it should certainly be checked out before it goes out. It's a lot easier to adjust a limit switch in the shop and stuff than it does out in the field. And I guarantee you, you know that. But anyway, no, absolutely. So, do you think there's any um, any advances or any uh, creative, you know? R&D type things, and I'm not asking for you to, you know, talk about any, you know, trade secrets you guys have, but in a broad sense, motor controllers are fairly simple. They take power, they distribute it into the hoist, they deal with the control side of it. Is there something, you know, in between that and automation where you're getting feedback from chain hoists? Um, there are systems out there like the uh, cyber hoist where you get some pretty complicated information. And I know that you guys do do more things, but what's the next step? Uh, maybe this is a better way to phrase the question. What's the next step up from your standard, standard, wow, accident came out there, standard motor controller that's just dealing with uh, power and control? Yeah, I, I think really there's, there isn't a, an open gap between standard control and then encoders. Um, you know, certainly getting the cost down on automated hoist where we're using encoders and certainly BFD, APTFD is something that you, know, you can see it growing in the industry. There's a lot more people that are doing BFD hoists, um, you know, doing total show control and stuff like that. And, those are all things that we currently do, and, and we're working on some systems to drive the cost, you know, per point down on, on stuff like that. But generally, with um, you know, with, with the standard chain hoist control, there's just a pretty gap, you know, from that to you know, automated control. Certainly, you know, trying to get things into a smaller footprint, um, you know, making them lighter, things like uh, press mount controllers. Um, so you can fly the control if you want. 
Um, there's just not really a lot of room to expand on just standard X-speed motor control. Maybe a jump to automation and using encoders and stuff. Well, let's let's talk about encoders. Um, now, my experience with them is pretty limited. There was a uh, a nightclub in Boston, Avalon, that had uh, some old CM motors that had encoders for positioning. Let's talk about how they work. What is what's the technology behind an encoder, and um, and what kind of information does it give you, and what can you do with that info? That's yes. a whole lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, just to put it in real layman's terms to, to think about this, you have a load wheel. So you have the chain going around the load wheel. So on that final output of the gearbox going to the load wheel, at some point in there is where you want to have your encoder because you what you want to know is how that load wheel is turning. So imagine something, and it doesn't attach directly to the load wheel, but let's just for the sake of the conversation, imagine it is that final output to the load wheel. You attach an encoder, and as that encoder rotates with the load wheel, it provides pulses. And those pulses are sent back to a PLC where we can read those number of pulses. We know how many pulses per revolution um, it takes for a full revolution of the load wheel. We know the distance that the load wheel you know, AKA the load itself travels with one revolution. So once you have those pieces of information, you can determine where the actual load is. And that's what allows us, you know, once you get everything hooked up and you have a zero point for everything, then you can, you know, go to a computer or HMI and type in you know, 34.6 feet, hit the go button and have it actually go to, to that very, uh, very location that, that you're putting in. And that starts to allow you to do a lot of, uh, you know, different things within shows to you know, bring things in or have a move during the show or, you know, a lot of different set points and stuff versus just a standard uh, fixed speed control. Well, I'm still talking fixed speed, but just a standard no encoder control where you're pushing a button that's just going and where you're letting off of it and it's kind of eyeballing where it's at. And you think the reason why that's not a a, a standard within the industry or a a um, you know more more seen in your base level hoists the the cost difference between you know your stock hoist and adding that encoder? You know, I I don't really because a lot of times in our industries stuff just doesn't really call for it. Um, you know, you, you maybe have a, a lead wall that you're flying in, um, and it's just sitting there. You're not moving it during the show. Or maybe if you are, you're just flying it out. Um, what you're looking to do is get it out of the sideline or something. Um, in those instances, you really just don't need encoders. Um, there's a lot of times, and, and certainly I like to, to sell as much as I can, you know, but there's a lot of times where people will come to me for, encoders or uh, especially VFD is a big one. They'll say, oh, we want variable speed. And you know, the price really goes up on that. So whenever we look at the project, and look at what they're wanting to do with it. Sometimes it's just as simple as you can go up with just a limit switch to uh, provide your stopping point. You don't even need it to begin with. And a lot of times maybe fixed speed, uh, high speed is all they need. We don't really need variable speed. 
Um, so I think it's just the applications. It does come at a higher cost, certainly, but I think the application, just especially for uh, a lot of rental places and stuff, it just doesn't doesn't really require it. What's the uh, what's the largest motor controller in the the traditional, you know, the basic level hoist that you guys have done? Well, I would bet that predates me, um, but I know of a project where we did, you know, the, the thing is like all in one system, you know, 32 is about as big as you get in one system or one, let me say one case just because of size, but then you can turn around and start linking those together. So I know of projects you know, that I've been involved with um, where we've done 140 hoist, I think maybe is maybe the most, the most that I've been involved with. That's a lot of hoists that you could move at the same time. <laughs> it's kind of scary. It is very scary. I remember whenever I, uh, I left the industrial world and one of the last projects that I did was uh, systems for Lockheed Martin and they were lifting missiles. Um, they weren't live, of course, but that's what they were used for. And I had a bunch of buddies somebody else for going to entertainment to um, you know, half ton, one ton chain hoist and stuff. You're never gonna lift anything cool. You know, the last thing you did was a 20 ton crane to lift missiles. And uh, that's where I sent him a picture that was probably stadium the first week that uh, I was there or on the job and we're actually meet, met the Herman, the owner of Motion Labs, and we're raising that mother bear that they were putting into the Cowboy Stadium when it was under construction. I saw my buddy's picture of that and said, what, what do you say now? And they're like, okay, yeah, forget it. You're right. You're, you're still looking bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's impressive. And, and I think that's something that people um, – don't recognize necessarily is that a lot of companies in the entertainment market, not just hoist and rigging, but a lot of companies in general in the entertainment market will do a lot of work for other industries because the technology is the same and it's a, it's a business opportunity. Um, the, uh, the one that I usually refer to is uh, mountain productions uh, years ago. So this was again, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, they were working on a project where they were fabricating giant steel trusses that were holding targets for tanks. So basically think of a, a plinking shooting range, but instead of for rifles or pistols, it was for tanks. And so they engineered and built these things. And it's, you know, a project that they had and they could do it because they had the the resources and, and the skill to be able to do it. So there are a lot of uh, cross cross pollination to say with some of the technology. Yeah, there is, and you know, it's something that in the industrial world they're not used to moving hoist together. You know, you have a lot of single picks, or um, maybe you're flipping a die or something. You're doing a two pick point, but they don't track a lot of hoist, and we get a lot of uh, people from the industrial world and stuff will come to us. Um, you know, because they have an application where they need to control multiple hoists together. Um, we've done several projects like that. And even it's kind of funny as you as you go over to that industry and 
sometimes it's as simple as they just need a standard, you know, four channel fixed speed controller. And they don't even know that some of that exists. And they think, oh my gosh, this is amazing technology you have here. And it's just a standard controller, no, no encoders, nothing like that. Um, we, we get a lot of those requests. And it's good, especially you know, nowadays when we can diversify ourselves into that industry a little bit to uh, yeah. everything we're going through now. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a, a, another technical question. When I started in the industry, the practice that we would use, and this may have been just a particular company, but every single show, we would run all of the motors to the controller on the ground. And it wasn't until I mean, 10 years after that, that, uh, again, it may have been a geographical thing, but the mindset kind of changed where we started putting the controller up on the trusses to fly with them and you drop the control pin uh, cable down and the motor feed cable down to the controller. Now, the question ultimately is going to be, is there a, a big advantage to putting a controller in the air in terms of, I'm going to use the term efficiency it, from an electrical standpoint? Maybe I should clarify the question. Some thought process is that when you put the motor controller on the truss, you're running shorter lengths of the smaller gauge fly cable so that you're avoiding potential voltage drop in having a hoist run slower or brake chatter or whatever may result from the lower voltage. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say to answer your question. One of the big things with doing that is reducing your cable runs for a multitude of reasons. Obviously, voltage drops a big thing. Uh, you know, less cable that you're carrying on, you know, your truck, less cable you have to feed and everything. Uh, a lot of people are, are doing that now. Um, and I would think that's the number one reason why um, all of our APA style controllers, we can put truss clamps on to mount the controller to the truss and then we actually uh, develop the product. It's a truss mount controller that's made to just be mounted directly through the truss for those very reasons too. All right, I'm going to ask the third rail question of hoist control. How come we haven't seen the development or the the spread of use of wireless control? That's funny. Whenever you said that, I've, I've thought, what question? People should know I've not seen any of the questions that you're asking prior. Um, I, I knew you were going to ask that. It's one of the first things... Um, I kind of asked you whenever I came into the industry after I moved past, um, you know, no standardization on especially the 710. Um, in my days, you know, working in a steel mill and stuff, all of our locomotives were wireless. Um, and most every crane was wireless unless it was lifting hot metal. Um, all of those were, you know, I had an operator in the cab. I was surprised whenever I came to entertainment that there wasn't wireless control in there. Um, I've talked to Pete some about it, you know, from us. I think, honestly, the main reason that it's not there is I just don't think the industry is is really ready or willing to accept it. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of, there's certainly a safety issue, but there's, there's a lot of safety built into those products now with the way codes and things are sent back and forth from the controller um, to make sure. But I think just the nature of a show going in and, and where the controller can end up being and kind of the rush of the industry and stuff, I think tethering everything back to, you know, the control system is, is probably in the industry really still a pretty good thing. Um, not to say that it, it won't be something that happens, but I just don't think that we're, I don't think the want and the need is absolutely here yet for that. No, that is certainly, and like I talked about last week with uh, Andy, um, a lot of times the technological advances are driven by need, you know, hey, I need to do this. Well, let's let's figure out how to R&D it and make it work for our application. And then once it's done, everyone says, hey, that's great. Can I steal it? Sure. Um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of, it, and the wireless control thing for me is kind of similar to wireless DMX. There's uh, it, it took a long time for people to start trusting it in a show critical situation. And I'm not inferring that lighting is, you know, <laughs> as in, as important to life safety as, you know, hoisting is. But if you're being paid to do an event and you're using wireless DMX and you have failure, then it's going to cause issues for your reputation. And one of the things that would often come up is, well, I trust the, the physical wire more than I do the wireless, which is probably based on the fact that we have a long history of use of that physical wire, but we've all had bad DMX before. I mean, you, you can go on controlbooth.com and search for DMX and you'll see dozens of threads of people saying, Hey, I just got a new lighting fixture. I plugged it in and now all my moving lights are doing these weird dancey things. Oh, well, do you have a bad DMX cable somewhere? Maybe adding that one fixture just changed the impedance enough that things happen. So the physical cable can also have issues, but I think we have a longer track record with it. And so we trust it more than the wireless. I always think about it when I see uh, one of the Lyft rental companies deliver a, a Lyft and the flatbed trucks are now using wireless pendants instead of hydraulic levers so that yeah. the operator can actually stand clear of the flatbed and articulate it to be able to lower the lift off of it. So yeah, it's one of those things that I've, I've often thought about and I don't know if I've quite made up my mind about whether I would be willing to, to be the Guinea pig to be like, Hey, you know, what's the technology behind it? What's the fail safe. And that becomes the issue of the difference between what industrial lifting is doing and what we're doing in theory is we often have equipment above people. And so that perceived increased risk is I think what stops us from saying, Oh, it's okay. You know, the, the safety measures are there. Yeah. And, and you hit it on the head there. Um, you know, when you think about it in an industrial application, you've got an overhead crane that's going to lift the coil steel. Where's the best place for that guy to be? Is he up in the crane in a, a, a booth over to one side, or is he standing right in front of that coil as he's manipulating the hook, you know, right inside the eye of the coil as he's lifting it? You know, in that, in that instance, it's honestly you know, quite 
and safer. He's walking along with the load and, and doing that in our industry where you have, you know, you're, you have multiple points that are being lifted. Where is that? Where is that guy at? You know, as it stands now, you, you generally have people placed, you know, all around and, and you kind of know where the operator's going to be because he's limited that he's 50 or 100, you know, 200 feet away from the control system kind of tethered, tethered back to it. Um, I think that's, you know, one reason why there's not a huge benefit really in our industry for that to even be wireless. It only just, you know, allows him to maybe be somewhere where he doesn't need to be or shouldn't be. Be my you know kind of biggest concern with that. Um, yeah, so you hit on it. Amazed me. I never thought about it before I got in this industry. But if you walked into a factory and somebody had a chain hoist with a you know thousand pounds of uh, steel, you know, load underneath it, and a guy standing under the load, the first thing you would say is, "What are you doing? Like, move! You, you don't stand under the load." But yeah, we go to shows, you know all the time and nobody thinks about how much weight is literally sitting above them hanging on chain hoists. Um, I never thought about that before I came into this industry. You know, now I take photo show that I don't just sit there and look up the entire time. But, um, it is a, a very dangerous thing that, that we do in our industry and we certainly have to do it right. No, absolutely. Um, so Let's say someone uh, is is relatively new to the business. Um, it's their first time operating a, a fixed speed chain hoist controller. Let's talk about what the proper procedure is for for getting it functional. And also, are there any things that people need to inspect on their motor controller periodically? Yeah, I you know everybody. And I, you know, I know we're talking about more control here and stuff, but you know, say that you're you are going to lift, you know, let's just call it easy enough for just a two point lift or something. But one of the first things that you want to do is is look at it, look at the place. You know, there's a visual inspection that should be done to every hoist prior to to using it, um, no matter where it came from or who rigged it or whatever. Need to do a visual just inspection of that hoist, just a quick look to make sure you know the hook's not spread, the load if it's already you know rigged, the load is secured in the hook correctly. Um, you don't see any major defects in the in the chain from what you can see. Um, cables are a big thing. You know we talked about the seven pins. Um, spinners are a big thing in the circular connector, where the keyway can get broken, the inside of the connector can spin causing you to connect it and have it actually rotate out of phase, even though you, you know, roll about the keyways and stuff. Um, checking your cables to make sure, you know, forklifts and stuff haven't driven over them. The moment you hit power or, you know, turn that controller on or energize the hoist for a move that you don't have a short circuit. Um, coming up. Certainly looking at the handheld, the cable of the handheld back to the controller. Um, Ideally, like with the product, you would make sure that your phase of okay light is on, which would mean that you know the controller wiring is matching the uh, the building wiring as far as being in phase. Again, just don't forget that you know one of the first things you want to do is bump the hoist, each hoist, and make sure up is up and down is down, because you want to make sure that your output phase does match how the hoist is wired. 
And that could differ if you have you know, a situation you could have that's bad is say you have 12 hoists that you bring into a location and they rent 12 hoists, so you've got 24 hoists that you're putting on the rig. Um, those hoists could be wired differently as far as the phasing. So you could have a group of 12 that up is up, but whenever you go to operate the other 12, up is actually down. And that situation comes off of on the controller. You've, you've got to decide what you're going to do to get them all in the exact same phase. So up is up and down is down for, for all of them. Um, in that pumping process, knowing where each hoist is, you know, what is hoist one, what is hoist two, where are they at, making sure they're all in the right direction. I had a question. It was right there. <laughs> Oh, I remember what it was. So why is there not a two-channel, small, handheld controller? It, it, that, that seems to be the, uh, the magic bullet for a lot of people who are doing, you know, literally the small event. I have 30 feet of truss and two half-ton motors, and I realize I can just use two pickles in my, my two hands, but I really want a single controller. And I've 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 seen one years ago, and uh, that company didn't last very long. So why isn't there one? Um, so you're talking about this, you know, out of the hand of a controller, just a pickle. So one handheld two button pickle that would actually have two outputs to operate two separate voices. Yeah, yeah. You 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 could do that and do it safely, but one thing you have to remember is because the control voltage is generated in the hoist, the contacts on the pickle for up and down have got to be separated. So a lot of times, and most pickles out there are like that. I certainly haven't opened up every brand and looked at them, so don't hold me to it. Most every, all of them that I've seen have a contact box. So maybe you have two sets of normally open contacts, but you only have one feed coming into it. So you don't, you don't get into a situation where you're using the control voltage from hoist B to actually operate hoist A. So you'd have to have that wired such that the contacts on each push button, the upper, the down are completely independent of each other. So the proper control voltage is coming into that contact and being returned to that same hoist. If you right. like that, that's safe. Um, that's the right way to wire it. Um, then it would just be a matter of, you know, knowing that not all chain hoists run the same speed. There's going to be a difference maybe between the contacts, energizing and stuff as, as you push that button. Um, so you could do a little bit of speed mismatch. Um, the only way you could correct that is to unplug one and bump the other to uh, get them level back out. It, it could be done and done safely. I don't know of any other reason why you, you really couldn't do that. Could, could, you, could you throw a uh, an on-off switch on the common for each one so that you could have the ability to select which hoist was running? You, so you, you could have one or the other or both? Yeah, you could, but now you're... I mean, you're starting to get big. You know, yeah. 
sure to change things from just that simple little, you know, two button pickle that you were looking for. But one of the things we get a lot, it always amazes me, especially on the power distribution side, really mostly on the power distribution side. We, we have thousands of products that we've made and at least just about every week, we're still engineering something new. There's some new um, connector combination or something that we just haven't built that somebody needs or wants. And the, the biggest conversation I always had with them is they, they say, well, I need that to be in like a, a 12 by you know six by 12 box. Like, well, we, we can't do that. Well, yeah, you can. It's only four connectors, and each one of them is, you know, three inches or two inches across. That's eight inches. You've got clearance. But because we're a listed shop, there's all kinds of things that, you know, we have to do to keep our listing. And a lot of those things are, it's not just, you know, how much stuff can you cram into this box. There's, you know, distances that things have to be apart. Um, you know, there's terminal strips that have to go in there and all the other things that come from the uh, listing side of the stuff to make a product safe, we have to adhere to as well. Um, it, it's, you've seen it. You've seen the cam walks to uh, 38 adapters out there with no breakers in between and, and things like that that just aren't safe. So I'm, I'm glad to see that I don't see those as much as I used to. And, um, people are definitely taking a safer approach to things and understanding why, you know, some things, even though they seem so simple on the surface, have to be what they are to, to take us to the level of safety we need to be at. Yeah, I, I have run across some people who built basically a twofer for a pickle. They're like, oh, I can just use this to run both hoists at the same time. And it's like, no, no, no. bad. Very bad, Will Robinson. Very bad. Um, yeah, but you know, there are some times where people uh, on limited budgets get creative and think they know what they're doing and they don't and create uh, some serious issues. I think that's what got us into the, the myriad of connectors that we have in our industry for chain hoists. You know, when this started, I don't know who was the first person to really do it. I know there's a few people that have laid claim to, you know, doing the first upside down chain hoist and stuff, but nonetheless, I, I, I think, if, you know, it distincts that at that time people didn't say, hey, this looks like something's going to happen in our industry. Let's all get on a level playing field. Because um, I think it was a lot of, well, you know, we've got a bunch of L1620s here in the shop. Just use that. And yep. For power. Um, it was a lot of that kind of stuff um, before it was really established and we were looking at codes and ESPA was really involved in, you know, writing ANSI standards and stuff like that. I think it's what got us into some of the, the problems that we have out there now. I mean, I, I still occasionally run into companies where on uh, separate control power cables, they use the same connector and all they do is um reverse the end on one cable to say so you have yeah. one one is male to female and the other is female to male to say and i don't think that's a great idea because you still have the possibility of screwing something up somewhere whereas if you have you know a four pin connector for power and a three pin for control at least that is uh you know harder to, to screw up 
Yeah, and, and and think about it too. Like you, you still even want a four pin on your control circuit. Uh, there were a lot of L520s used for pickles out there and stuff, but you really should have a four pin on your control to, to keep the ground in that cable too, because you've still got 120 volts coming in on a cable. It's something that somebody has in their hand. Um, you really want to have that ground connector on that one as well. Um, it, it's crazy stuff like that that used to make me lose sleep at night and stuff, and it was hard to explain to a company, um, like one that I went to once that had all L520s on their uh, control side, and I had to try to explain to them why you know, it was wrong and just because they hadn't had any issues or anything. For so long, how they really needed to just bite the bullet and you know get it right before they kept going down that road any farther. Absolutely. Um, what else can I think of? Well, you know, chain hoists and chain hoist control. It's should be something we could talk about for hours and hours. I would think. Well, I mean, I'm open to the challenge. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, I go back to those people saying, oh, you'll never lift anything, you know, really cool and stuff. But, you know, what a great industry, though, we have. And you think of all the people who live in all the companies and I always wondered, like, well, maybe those people are right. Like, how many chain points can you sell? You know, how many controllers can you sell? At some point, the bucket's got to be full, isn't it? And, you know, no. It's it's not. We just the industry just keeps growing and growing and growing. Hey, I I got a random question because I'm looking at the website. the The Motion Lab pendant, the yellow pendant that is so identifiable with Motion Lab within our industry, I've heard this this rumor. There's this this old wives' tale that Motion Labs has the patent on that pendant. Is that true, or is that just a, a made-up story? You know, I might have to defer to Pete on that. I don't think that it's true. I, I really don't. But I could. I, mean, I think I've seen them in other applications, different companies yeah. and everything. But um, I, I had heard a story at some point years ago that, uh, you know, someone had done something with one of those, you know, pendants. Um and there was some like, hey, you can't do that because we own the IP on it or something like that. I, I'd have to, yeah, we'd have to check with uh, Pete. I, I I don't think so though, because I have seen them out there and other things, but it is pretty iconic. I mean, when you see it, you kind of know that's an emotionless controller. The you know the moment you see that. I think a lot of people enjoy the fact that it says "kill" button, not like "off" or "disengage," but "kill." <laughs> Keep pushing it, but nobody's dying here. <laughs> <laughs> it's not working. I keep aiming it at this person. I'm sure that happened more times than we can count. No, absolutely. So, what are some of the other uh, other things people should be looking at their control? Or let's talk about you know what where is there a line for user serviceability? on a motor controller. Like if you're, it, I've had situations where on the pendant, one of your selection switches has started to not work so well. So you kind of, you know, take the faceplate off and tighten things up and put it back together, obviously not plugged into power. Um, is there opportunities for people to do 
quote unquote factory training on motor controllers to learn to do service on them? Or is that something that really you guys maintain in-house to maintain a, a level of quality and integrity? You know, that's, um, that's something that we started last year uh, doing training classes on all of our products now. So motor, motor control class, we have uh, our distribution classes. There are certain you know things that are user serviceable in our products, and there are certainly things that you know just look. Everybody knows you need to inspect the chain hoist and stuff. There's the same things with uh, you know motor controllers and power distribution and stuff that people need to do as well. Um, so we even if you go to the website, the MLI Learning Tab, um, it, it lists all of the classes and stuff that we have available. Of course, you know due to COVID, and we've had to cancel most of them for this year. Um, but we do have classes that we teach um, in Cortland Manor at uh, one of our two facilities there. It's actually an eight skill down next door um, where we can teach people how to, to do the uh, uh, to inspect them and stuff and to do the, the repairs that you can do. Uh, in the case of like what you were talking about, we can do things down to the component level on that or that whole faceplate comes out with all the components and just plugs in. Um, so you can take it out and just plug in a new board that you know gives you everything brand new as well. So definitely user serviceable products and stuff. Um, and we'll look for people to uh, take a look at the uh, MLI learning page, uh, look at some of the class dates and stuff. And hopefully as things open back up and stuff, we can start getting those classes filled up again. We're also um, gonna release some online trainings as well. Um, and then it'll be on the learning page also, so you can take a look there to see things that you can do from home also. So here's a question I have. Looking through your website, you guys have a, a section for optional equipment e-stop system. And so that led to this question. Is there, in, in, in the ANSI standard, is there a requirement for an e-stop on a uh, hoist control system? And if so, is the kill switch considered an e-stop? That's a really good question. Have you been sitting in on my uh, uh, task group meetings? Um, that's something that we're, we're dealing with right now um, on the standard for fixed speed chain hoist control. Um, an e-stop is a very defined thing. It's, it's defined by, you know, ANSI and OSHA. Um, I'm trying to see how I can put this. The kill switch is not uh, technically meets, does not technically meet the definition of e-stop. Um, nor does other things out there sometimes that may be indicated to be an e-stop. Um, e-stop is is, has to be a certain color uh, E-stop has to have uh, another certain color on it. Um, so <laughs> I'm trying to, to, to go around this gently, but to answer your question, no. The kill switch is not an E-stop. Um, currently, fixed speed hoist controllers do not are not required to have an E-stop. Um, only install control systems are really required to have a true e-stop function. Again, 
remember that's a, you know that's going to an ANSI standard and and all those are not compulsory so you know i don't know if you can really say required um right anyway because you know, it's not it's a it's a standard it's not a, a law so I believe one of the things about an e-stop requirement is that it kills power to the device, not just control, correct? Correct. correct. It has to kill power. It has to be maintained and cause a, a physical reset to it. Um, and, you know, the kill switch does do that. The kill switch does drop out for three-phase power coming out to the hoist, but it's not a maintained um, device. It's not a separate relay that drops that out. Um, there's several things like that that are in the definition of these stuff that, that have to be read. So it's not just it's not just the the blue color of the the pendant. It's the the form factor of the switch, as well as how it is killing the power within the controller, being a redundant or secondary uh, process to do that. Exactly. Yeah, there's there's a lot of fun fun different options of uh, configurations and controllers. Um, what is the strangest request that you guys have had while you've been there for a motor controller? Oh wow! Uh, if that person is listening. <laughs> You can leave the names out. Yeah, but, but they may know. They may think their request was so common. A lot of people ask for it. Um, you, you know, I've I've had people. I don't know that it's that strange. I mean, I'm going to use this one, but I've had people like say want a 12 channel controller, but they want like four channels of P14 and four channels of dual twist and you know, another four channels of seven pin, or maybe even two channels of C730 and two channels of C738 or something. It's like, oh my gosh, can you, can you not pick one? <laughs> like, you have no idea what, you know, the four, again, it's like, oh, what's, you know, it should all fit, but every one of those uh, connectors has a different form factor, uses different real estate, uh, just be a nightmare to build something like that. And then again, what's, what's the purpose? Why is it that you have such a mixed mess of, of hoist and stuff? And if you're, you know, if you're, if you're getting into it like that, you know, wouldn't adapters maybe be a better answer if you had, you know, like the occasional rule that comes in with a different connector or something that you're using? Yeah. I, when, uh, the first set of motors that I was in charge of was a uh, single phase half tons, but we had separate uh, control and power for those. And then when we bought some of the three phase one tons, we same thing, different connectors to deal with the uh, different uh, gauge of the wire. And eventually we went to, and as you said, it was to make our hoist compatible with what the other companies around us had. We went to the, the P7 quarter turn style connector. And the two things that I really enjoyed about that were, one, we were able to make our motor controllers a little smaller because we didn't need the extra real estate for the two connectors. 
And I thought coiling a single fly cable in a single jacket was a lot easier than the bonded or the taped together or loomed uh, two cables. I thought it looked nicer because without fail, you get to the end of the cable and they don't line up and you get these little bellies between the tape banding. So. Yeah, we all, uh, uh, those in the, in the uh, uh, dual fist lock now, we have those in the overmold. So we do it in one table, and then when we split it out to the uh, two power and control connectors, that's actually overmolded Y now. Um, so it's a pretty nice product that uh, you know, gets you back into one cable, even though you're using twist locks in the uh, it's away from all the heat shrink and stuff like that that used to be used. Yep. And there, there's some pretty, uh, pretty large companies that use that system for their, their hoists. Yeah. Um, with, with a lot of inventory too. So yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's pretty interesting. And that's, that's, you know, a lot of people may not have been exposed to now, but overmolded cables are, are more popular. It's something that uh, we've started doing ourselves as well. I would say, like on the seven pins, especially, probably, probably 75% at least of what we sell is, is over molded. Um, one of the good things about them is it, it keeps you from having spinners because you'll get that uh, centerpiece is locked in now. It can never spin on you. So, the days of world spinners with that are over which is certainly a great thing absolutely and and you know it's it's one of those things where people are like well it's more expensive at startup but they they'll last you longer the chances of failure is is shorter um you know it's it's like when i teach about rope yes you can buy cheap rope but if you're paying ten dollars for a rope and it lasts you a year and you can pay $15 for a rope that's going to last you two years, it's a better value. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing with your cable, with all of your equipment. The, you want value. You want to pay you know, a reasonable price for something that's going to last as long as possible and be quality. So you know, it's not always the, what can I afford to do that will get me through the show? And, and we feel strongly enough about the overmold um, performance and stuff, but we don't bend your warranty on that against any manufacturer's defects. Um, we put them in the 19th gen as well. In the three and a half years that I've been there, I've had one cable return that we had to replace under warranty. So that was, you know, thousands and thousands of cables. Yeah. So uh, this will mean nothing to any of the listeners, but on the Motion Labs website under products, there's uh, phase three multi-pin connectors is one of the choices under products, which is a, a 19 pin, you know, beam and Soncompex compatible connector. Literally, as I clicked on that, I got a LinkedIn request from a uh, person who's the vice president of the manufacturer of that connector. Uh, that's funny. Yes, Tracy Allen. And it's very, very eerie that that happened exactly at the same time I was looking at it. Thank you, Google. Yeah, um, she's, she's somehow, even though you're recording this, she's somehow listening and watching you now. Exactly. It's just, you know, her ears must be ringing. Uh, Tracy's new to that position. Uh, 
if uh, I know you know her, I think from uh, in the, the previous days, stage maker and stuff, but uh, she's mm-hmm. sells for phase three. Yep. So I'll mention to the listeners, there is a topic that uh, we are kind of not discussing, which is load cells and the integration of load cells into the control side, because we actually are going to do a, a separate op- episode with Motion Lab about load cells specifically, but with someone who has a, uh, a very extensive knowledge of load cells, and we'll get into that. So I wanted to mention to people, there's a reason why we're kind of not talking about that yet, because we, uh, we wanted to have some more content with uh, more detail than what either one of us can provide. Um, but the, it, in a broad sense, it should be something to, to mention that there is the option of on the motion lab control side of adding in a load cell interaction fail safe to say not it is monitoring but also uh overload protection if you needed to do that on a one-off event you don't necessarily have to uh replace your system with a new system is that correct that is, that is correct. So you know, we offer load cells in, in three styles. We have a shackle pin style if, you know, headroom is an issue. Uh, we have the tension link style or bar stop. Um, it's just a little bit more rugged. It has a little bit higher degree of accuracy. And then we are the OEM manufacturer for the load hook for the CM hoist. Uh, for the load stars, it's actually integrated into a load hook and doesn't pick up any headroom at all. Um, any one of those three products are available to just simply a display if you're wanting to just know what you know weights are um, at various points and then also can go into what's called our warden system which allows you to program to actually shut the system down at various overload or even underload um, conditions so you're not moving a load on the place to stop or maybe it's got caught on something or anything like that you can actually take the warden system and plug it in to a standard fixed-speed control, uh, motor controller where the handheld remote plugs in and then the handheld remote would plug into the warden. So now you can take a system that you have already from Motion Labs and add over and load protection to that system real easily with just our basic uh, remote cables. Yeah, it is. It is a pretty slick system, and that's one of the beauties that, you know, motors are kind of dumb, and the motor control, unless you're getting into positioning stuff, is uh, is pretty simple. So the ability to add something in line on that control pendant side and gain that functionality uh, makes it easy to be able to expand and contract the system as needed. So. There's all kinds of, and we'll do it in our next one, but you know, so people know and maybe give them a teaser, but there's just a multitude of reasons to, uh, to use load cells. It's definitely a shift in the industry. More people are starting to use load cells. They're becoming more popular. People are understanding why they need to do that. Um, why they should be doing it. That's one of the reasons CN came to us. I think it is to design and, and implement the uh, integrated load cell into the hoist. Um, 
So I think that's a big thing that people are going to really, if you know what those holes are, you probably won't want to see that in a couple of years because uh, it's definitely see the industry moving that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it, you know, if you compare it to the automobile industry, things that 20 years ago were an add on and cost a lot more to do, but were a great convenience now are just stock items. That's, you know, Bluetooth in your car used to be an add on. And now, you know, if you buy a car that doesn't have Bluetooth, you're probably paying more for that car for them to take it out. Um, and, and load sensing in a hoist is, hopefully will be one of those things where at some point we're not going to say, oh, well, it would be nice to have load cells on this show, but we can't afford it to. Well, the motors have it. It's data. I can look at it on my, you know, my my smartphone gives me a display and I can see all the information and I know we're good. And um, that would be a, a great day in the industry where we where load cells are not an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, most, we sell a, a lot of them, and we do a lot of them in our control system. So a lot of times when people are going to an automated system, um, load cells are, are pretty much just a standard thing that they're adding in. Um, and it just gives you a whole other level of safety. Everybody always thinks on overload, too, and you always got to think of underload, too, because just as much as I always put those overloaded you always want to know if it always becomes underloaded as well which is an indication of even as much of a problem yeah because when you're when you're you know on a three hoist truss at a given length if one of your end motors becomes underloaded then you have a long cantilever and it's not yeah. an issue of whether the hoist the adjacent hoists are going to fail but is your beam, in this case the truss, is that going to fail? Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of like the, why is there a minimum on a, on a fall arrest harness? You never think about the minimum. You usually are so focused on the maximum. It's the same thing. Yeah. Excellent. All right. I don't, I don't think I have any more questions that I can ask about motor controllers that, that anyone would really care about. So I do have another question for you, which I'm expecting I'm going to guess that you don't have an answer to, but I'll ask it anyway. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some leeway because you're not yourself a, a rigger. But do you have any good and or bad rigger jokes or rigging <laughs> jokes? Um, yeah, let's see. You didn't feed me these questions ahead of time. I, you know, I don't have any good or bad, or probably all bad rigor jokes. And you know what? I have heard a few. You know, when you hang out with the likes of Dave Carmack, you're, you're bound to have heard a few jokes. Any one of his I could have remembered, I'm sure, but else you probably already heard anyway. Yep. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll allow you to call a friend, which is me. And I don't think I've used this one yet. Have you heard the one about the two riggers that walked past a bar? I, I've never known of two riggers to walk past a bar, but no. Yeah, me neither is the uh, punchline. <laughs> there there's, there's part of my brain that says that I may have told that one before, and if I did, I apologize. But I got to tell you something. The one I used a couple of weeks ago, which is there's only one rigger joke and the other, the rest of them are true stories. That's funny because it is true. There's not a whole book or website of rigger jokes. So 
that question may get retired sometime soon. <laughs> well, okay. thank you very much for uh, spending some time talking about chain hoist. And uh, I appreciate the, uh, you've changed my world, by the way. I'm now questioning everything I've ever known because of the, the, the transformer thing. And I'm like, uh, and, and the, the funny part is I'm going to go back and try to remember if it was Dave or where I got the information from, not because I want to be like, Oh no, I, I wasn't wrong. I want to figure out why I had it wrong in my head. I want to understand what, what, where the failure was so I can correct it. So if, if all else fails. Can we both agree? There's blame it on Dave. There's what? Can we both agree to blame it on Dave, no matter what? Oh, absolutely. It's always Dave's fault. It's everything's Dave's fault. Dave, why did this hoist in a case fall off the back of the truck with no straps? I mean, it's your fault, clearly. It's clearly, clearly Dave's fault. Yeah. If, if, if those days in your engineering, you hadn't figured out how to make the lift, the hoist lighter, it wouldn't have moved in the truck and blown out the back door and fallen. So yeah. it's clearly, you know, absolutely. Exactly. Well, thank you again. Thank you very much. I uh, I certainly thought it was helpful for me to hear things. I, again, I learned something new. I was corrected. And I think that's an important lesson for people to take away is that there's, again, all of us make mistakes. You confuse information, especially at our advanced age. Um, <laughs> but I will, uh, I'll throw a link in the show description for uh, the Motion Labs website. Check out their website. They have some great products, some cool stuff. Um, hey, before we go, you had kind of started mentioning it before, but I want to make sure I reiterate that before the pandemic, about 18 months ago, you guys started uh, really kind of building the training portion with motion labs and trying to to build some more curriculum correct yes absolutely so hopefully knock on wood when things start to uh calm down and we can start getting together in groups again there will be some more training opportunities for uh, people to take in in not only basic motor control but automation in the different services and certainly do check out uh, motion labs website they don't just do motor control. They do a lot, or a lot of power distribution and other products. Um, and as we mentioned, you know, companies with talented people tend to take on a lot of challenges. And you never know. You can always ask and say, hey, can you do this? And maybe they'll say yes. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at the website, it, you know, that's just a small portion of, of some of the things that we've built. If you don't see it on the website, it doesn't mean it's not available. It doesn't mean we can't do it. Reach out to uh, myself or most of our contact information is on the website. And uh, you know, we'll be happy to talk to anybody, help you know, them design a product, design a spec, get them quote, anything we can do to help out and uh, keep moving. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger. As big as can be.